like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. A couple weekends ago, the junior high had an event called the Underground Church, and they had to get to several destinations by figuring out certain clues, and our house was one of those destinations, and so they had these bizarre clues that they had to figure out, and if they messed up on a clue, they ended up wandering in the wilderness. That's much the impression that Christians give when they're searching for the will of God. It's like a mystery. It's like God is playing hide-and-seek with us, and He's giving us complicated, bizarre clues. And many Christians are worried and they're anxious and they're fearful that somehow they might miss God's direction. Is that the way God operates? No. You say, well then, how do I know what God wants me to do? And how do I know where God wants me to go? How does God lead me? Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to get some answers to those questions. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36, through chapter 16 and verse 10, we're going to see seven ways in which God guided Paul. And this is good stuff, because it shows us how God guides us today as well. I've picked out seven things. Passion, perspective, preference, precaution, policy, prevention, and persuasion. I might have had eight, but I couldn't come up with any more P's. <laughs> Number one is passion, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, a considerable amount of time has passed since the first missionary journey. When they got back, the last verse in chapter 14 says they spent a long time with the disciples. And then in chapter 15, they went to Jerusalem to work out the doctrinal issue there. And when they got back, verse 35 says they stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching. And now verse 36 says after some days... Paul turns to Barnabas and says, let us return. Now this is what initiates Paul's second missionary journey. There's no revelation from God. There's no angelic call. There's no lightning out of heaven. There's just the concern of the apostle Paul. He says, we need to visit those people that we led to Christ on the first missionary journey. We need to see how they're doing. We have a responsibility to help them grow in grace. And you see, the way God led him was through his passion. It was through his burden. If you ask the Apostle Paul what his passion was, he would give you at least two answers. Number one, he would say that his passion was to preach the gospel where it had never been preached. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 20, he says, I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. Paul was always looking for a new horizon, 
He was always making plans to go into new territory. Everywhere Paul was, he saw as a stepping stone to somewhere else. One of the places he always longed to go was the city of Rome. It was the most strategic city in the world. It was the capital of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. People from every corner of the world migrated to Rome. And Paul said, I long to go there. And you would think if he ever got to Rome, he would be content to settle down and spend the rest of his life ministering there. But here's what he wrote to the saints at Rome in Romans 15. He says, since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, I'm coming whenever I go to Spain and I will go on by way of you to Spain. For Paul, even Rome was a stepping stone to somewhere else. Paul was a foundation layer. He was a pioneer. He had a passion for uncharted waters. But he had a second passion. And that was a passion to see believers brought to maturity in Christ. He described that passion in Colossians 1.28 when he said, And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Unlike many modern-day evangelists, Paul didn't just travel from city to city preaching the gospel and leaving his converts to be followed up by somebody else. He saw it as his responsibility not only to preach the gospel, but to establish churches and to see those believers brought up to maturity in Christ. And so Paul's passion went beyond evangelism to its ultimate goal, which was discipleship. And that's really the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Paul knew that if he built up believers to maturity, then they would be able to multiply themselves. And that's why he later said in Ephesians 4.12 that gifted men are given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. In the long run, he knew that a well-taught, mature, spiritually strong congregation has a far greater impact than massive evangelistic crusades. And so, so Paul was not a hit-and-run evangelist. He poured his life into people. That's why he could say in Ephesus in Acts 20, 31, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That's why he could say to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Paul's passion was seeing believers come to maturity. And so here he is, busy teaching and preaching in Antioch. Whenever he has any spare moments, he's dreaming about places he's never been, Rome and Spain, and he thinks about those new believers in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and he turns to Barnabas and he says, let us return. We've got to see how they're doing. So how did God guide Paul? 
He guided him through his passion. He guided him through his burden. And oftentimes that's the way God guides us. He gives us a burden that won't go away. He gives us a passion for a certain group of people. He gives us a passion for a certain ministry. Periodically, someone will come to me and say, I think the church ought to do such and such a ministry. And you know what I say to them? I say, well, if God has laid the burden for that ministry on you, then it's very likely that God is calling you to do that ministry. God leads us through those passions that he lays on our hearts. Second way is perspective, verses 37 to 41. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Paul and Barnabas agreed on the importance of the trip. They couldn't agree on the composition of the team. Barnabas wanted John Mark to go. Now that's not surprising. Because Barnabas was the kind of guy who would take a guy like John Mark under his arm. That's why the apostles called him the son of encouragement. And Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 tells us that Mark was Barnabas' cousin. So he had a little extra incentive with this guy. And so Barnabas is saying, I know he blew it the first time, but let's give him another chance. But Paul was just as adamant that they not take him. After all, they took him on the first missionary journey and he deserted them and went home. And Paul would say, this work is too important to take along a fellow who's already proven that he's unreliable. And so as the discussion continued, it developed into an argument. And soon the only solution for these two good friends was to separate. And so verse 39 says, And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They separated and went opposite ways. You say, well, who was right? Well, some people say that Paul was right. And the reason they say that is because verse 40 tells us that he and Silas were committed to the work by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And another reason they give is that Barnabas is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. But I'm not sure that's a conclusive argument because the rest of the book of Acts focuses on who? On Paul. If you look through the rest of the book of Acts, you'll also find that Peter is nowhere mentioned in the rest of the book of Acts, even though he's out there ministry. The spotlight is on Paul. So when we talk about who's right and who's wrong here, I don't think that's a very conclusive argument. In fact, when we look at the overall picture, I think that both of these fellows were right in some things and wrong in others. Barnabas was obviously right about John Mark because he did ultimately succeed in ministry. 
He's the one that God later chose to write the Gospel of Mark. And when Paul was writing his very last letter, 2 Timothy, in the very last chapter, here are the remarks he made to Timothy in verse 11. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, how did Mark get useful to Paul for service? Well, because Barnabas stuck with him. Because Barnabas didn't give up on him. Because Barnabas gave him a second chance. You see, the difference in these two men is really a difference of perspective. Paul saw the work. Barnabas saw the person. Paul asked, what can he do for God's work? Barnabas asked, what can God's work do for him? You see, that's just a difference of perspective. And Paul and Barnabas couldn't bring those two perspectives together when it came to John Mark. And so it developed into a sharp disagreement, and they separated. Here are two dedicated men who have just helped bring unity to the entire church. And they can't resolve their own disagreement. And this is just another of Satan's attempts to hinder the spread of the gospel. But you know what? On this occasion, it backfired. Because instead of one missionary team, there are now two. Instead of two missionaries going out, there are now others like Mark and Silas and in the next chapter, Timothy and Luke. In fact, Silas was probably a better partner for Paul at this point in time than Barnabas was because one of their responsibilities was to go to the churches and read that letter from Jerusalem as we read about them doing in chapter 16 and verse 4. And Silas was one of the leaders from the church in Jerusalem and so he was a creditable individual to be doing that. And so Barnabas took Mark, and he went down to Cyprus. Cyprus was Barnabas' home area, but it was also the area where John Mark had succeeded on the first missionary journey. So he took him down to Cyprus, the place where he had been successful. He didn't take him into Galatia, where it was more difficult and more challenging, and where Paul had been stoned. He took him to the easy area, so that in that context, he might nurture him and bring him along in the faith. And because Paul and Silas didn't have to go down to Cyprus, they were also able to go into some new territory that they had not gone to before. So God led Paul through perspective. For Paul, the work was the bottom line, and he forged ahead. For Barnabas, people were the bottom line, and he went slower to work with John Mark. And I think that that was God's intention all along, although he didn't plan on it happening through contention. Third way we see him led is by preference in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 16. Verse 1 says, And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Barnabas and Mark followed the path they had taken on the first missionary journey. They traveled by ship southeast down to the island of Cyprus. 
Paul and Silas traveled by land north and then west through Syria and Cilicia, probably traveling through Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And they arrived first at Derbe, which was the last city they had arrived on on the first journey. And then they went from there to Lystra, which was the city where Paul had been stoned. And verse 1 continues, And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was one that Paul had led to the Lord on his first missionary journey. And the reason I say that is because when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1-2, he calls him my true child in the faith. Timothy's mother was a Jewish woman. 2 Timothy 1-5 tells us her name was Eunice and her mother's name was Lois. They were both believers as well. Timothy's father was a Gentile. And the word was is in the imperfect tense, which means it's past tense, which indicates that his father was now probably deceased. So here's Timothy. He's a teenager, probably about 16 years old. He's a half-breed Jew. His father has died. He's being raised by his mother and his grandmother. But he's making great spiritual strides. And verse 2 tells us that. It says, And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. In contrast to Mark, Timothy had already been proven. He was well spoken of in these two cities of Lystra and Iconium. And they were not easy cities in which to be a believer. And so verse 3 says, Paul wanted this man to go with him. Having heard so many good things about Timothy, Paul said, I want him to go along. Now, you've got to think about this a minute because if you are Mama Eunice or Grandma Lois, Paul comes to you and says, I want little Timothy to go with me and help me out on my missionary journey. Now, they had a vivid memory of the last time Paul was in Lystra. He was beaten, bloody, and left for dead outside the city. So they knew that to, to let little Timothy go with Paul meant that he was going to be in a lot of danger. And yet they said, yeah, we'll make that sacrifice and we'll send him along. And so just as Silas had replaced Barnabas, now we see Timothy replacing John Mark. And we also, I think, see the direction of God here because Barnabas and Mark went down to Cyprus which made Paul and Silas go into Galatia the back way. If they had gone on the original route they would have come to Lystra near the end of their trip. But coming in the way they did they got to Lystra at the beginning of their trip took on Timothy and he was able to help them throughout the missionary journey. And so again we see the direction of God behind the scenes. So how did God guide Paul? He evaluated Timothy. He listened to the references of other godly people and he made the choice. It was his preference. You know, we often think that the will of God is like medicine. It has to taste bad to be good. We often think that if we let God lead us, he'll take us where we don't want to go and he'll make us do what we don't want to do. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord 
And he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Taking Timothy along was the desire of Paul's heart. See, what we have to do is walk in the Spirit of God, be guided by the principles of Scripture, and God often leads us through our preferences. Fourth thing was precaution. The end of verse 3. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now on the surface, this looks like a contradiction of what we just covered in chapter 15. There it was determined that Gentiles did not have to be circumcised to be saved. Now, one chapter later, here's Paul circumcising Timothy. What's going on? Well, Timothy is not being circumcised in order to be saved. Timothy is being circumcised in order not to offend the Jews. And that's what he tells us in verse 3. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Everyone knew that Timothy was a half-breed Jew. And the fact that he had never been circumcised indicated that he had rejected his Jewish heritage and his culture. And so Paul says, I want you to be circumcised as a precaution so that you will not be a stumbling block to evangelism to the Jews. By Timothy being circumcised, he could go with Paul and Silas, enter the synagogue in those cities that they visited, and enter into the ministry fully. There was another individual at about this same time that Paul dealt with, and his name was Titus. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3, we read that Paul refused to circumcise Titus. Titus was a full-blooded Gentile. To circumcise Titus would have been to give in to legalism, and Paul said no. But to have Timothy circumcised was a way of enhancing his ministry, and Paul said yes. See, that's consistent with what Paul would later teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he said, To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And so the way he dealt with Timothy and Titus, I think, give us an important principle. We as Christians must be sen sensitive to the unique characteristics of the culture in which we live. And that's especially true of missionaries. As Paul did in the case of Timothy, he circumcised him to avoid any unnecessary offense. But as Paul did in the case of Titus, he refused to circumcise him so that he would never compromise the truth of the gospel. So how did God guide Paul? By precaution. He was concerned about offending the people they were reaching out to. And the same is true of us today. God leads us by that same manner, by precaution. Read Romans chapter 14. God has given us Christian liberty, but we have to be careful how we use that so that we do not hinder the gospel or offend other people. Fifth way guided Paul was policy in verses 4 and 5. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. As they were passing through these various cities, they read the de decision that had been reached 
by the council in Jerusalem. And that decision, simply put, was salvation was solely by God's grace and that they, the Gentiles, should be careful not to hinder fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's really the twofold message of Christianity. Salvation by grace, living by love. And as they went around and shared that message, verse 5 tells us, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. The churches were growing two ways, in strength and in number. So how did God guide Paul? By policy decision. It was a decision made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Paul didn't have to pray about it. Paul didn't have to agonize over making this decision. The decision had already been made. All he had to do was carry it out. That was God's guidance. And God guides us the same way today. You say, well, I'm a Sunday school teacher, and I want to teach on the men, the great men of history, of the history of the church. But the Sunday school teacher that Kent Reese told me along with the elders, that I'm supposed to teach the gospel of Mark. What do you think I ought to do? Well, see, that's a no-brainer. You've already got your direction on what to do. The question is, are you going to obey or not? You see, God leads us today through God-given authority in our lives. That's true in the home, it's true in the church, it's true at work, it's true through the government. God is directing us. When he gives us those issues, when they're laid out, that's God's direction for our life, and we have to obey. So here we see Paul carrying out the directive that he was given by the leadership of the church. Sixth way he was led is prevention in verses 6 to 8. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had visited all the churches that Paul had planted, they didn't wait for God to give them some future direction. They went to the most logical place. Barnabas was already down in Cyprus, so they decided they would head west into Asia Minor. That's where the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were located. So they start to go in there, and it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told how he stopped them. It may have been through circumstances. It may have been through his inner witness. At any rate, God closed the door. And so they traveled west along the northern border of Asia Minor, and verse 7 says, and when they had come to Mysa, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So they try to go into Asia Minor. They can't get in there. God stops them. So they head west along the northern border of Asia Minor, and they decide they're going to go north into Bithynia, and again they get a closed door. So verse 8 says, And passing by Mysa, they came down to Troas. They couldn't go south because God closed the door into Asia Minor. They couldn't go north because God closed the door into Bithynia. They couldn't go east because they had just come from that direction. So the only way they could go was west, and they went west until they finally hit the Aegean Sea at Troas, and they stopped there. Now, we're not told how Paul responded to this situation. 
It may have been that he was disappointed. He may have even been a little discouraged because everything had been going great on this second missionary journey and now out of the blue, he's running into closed doors everywhere. But you know, I, I take great comfort in that. Isn't it good to know that even apostles were at times unclear about God's will for their life? How did God guide Paul? By prevention. God closed the doors. Now let me underline some lessons here. For God to lead you this way, you've got to be moving. Hello? He can't stop you if you're sitting still. I'm afraid some of us have never been led by a closed door because we've never tried to go through any door. You've got to be trying to go through doors of opportunity and ministry for God to say no to you. Second lesson. It's not wrong to try to go through a door and have God stop you. It doesn't say here that God rebuked Paul for trying to go into Asia Minor. It doesn't say he rebuked him for trying to go into Bithynia. You see, he had the right heart. He wanted to serve God. He just got to know. And then the third lesson. Just because a door is closed today doesn't mean it's going to be closed tomorrow. In Acts chapter 18 and 19, Paul goes to Ephesus in Asia Minor. Two chapters later, the door's open. And when Peter writes 1 Peter, he writes it to the saints in Bithynia. So God later opened that door as well. God often leads us by closing doors, but we've got to be moving. Seventh way he guided Paul is persuasion in verses 9 and 10. Paul arrived at Troas. He was, he was kind of like the children of Israel when they got to the Red Sea. He had a closed door everywhere, and he was facing the Aegean Sea. He couldn't go there either. And so God had to do something different in this case. And so verse 9 says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul was in Troas wondering what he's going to do next. He's lying on his bed at night, and he has a vision. He sees a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so verse 10, and when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I like that. It says, immediately. Paul didn't even wait till the morning. I mean, if you had a vision, would you wait till the morning? Paul has this vision in the middle of the night. He gets up and shares it with his companions, and they decide God is calling us to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel. Macedonia was about 130 miles across the Aegean Sea. Now let me add a footnote here. This is where Luke joined the team. And the way we know that is, if you look back at verse 8, it says, they came down to Troas... Verse 10 says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So how did God guide Paul? By persuasion. 
God communicated through a vision. And God may guide us that same way. God is sovereign. And sometimes he comes across in such an unmistakable way that you know God has spoken to you. May not be a vision, but God is still communicating. And when he communicates to you in this way, you'll know it. When I committed my life to the Lord, I was 20, living out in Denver, Colorado. And I was praying about what the Lord wanted me to do with my life. And as I prayed about it, I, I kept getting this impression that God wanted me to go to Bible school and study the Scriptures. Uh, and the only Bible school I'd ever heard of was Emmaus Bible School that my dad went to. So that kept coming into my mind, and I kept pushing it out of my mind because that isn't what I wanted to do. But as I prayed about it, I, the Lord just ministered to me saying that when you get to Mid-South Bible Conference in August of that year, I'll show you what you, wanted, what you need to do. So I had a real peace about it. I was praying about it. The Lord was just saying, I'm going to tell you. When you get there, I'm going to tell you. Now, a little earlier than that, I had contacted Emmaus Bible College to see if I could even come, and they said, well, we're full for the coming year. So I said, oh, okay. And my parents didn't have the money to send me. So there seemed to be a closed door there. So I had $80 in my pocket, and I hitchhiked from Denver to near Nashville to Mid-South Bible Conference. And I showed up there with my long hair and, and uh, bell-bottoms. <laughs> I would have been in today. And the second day I was there, a man came up to me and he said, Dan, what are you planning to do? And I said, I don't know. I hadn't told anybody what I was thinking about doing. He said to me, you know, if you want to go to Emmaus Bible College, I'll pay your way. Now, I didn't have to say, well, let me pray about it. <laughs> or let me check out my other options. You see, God had made it very clear to me that he was going to speak to me on that occasion. And he did. And he guided me there. When I got to school, you know, they, I sent in my application. They said they were closed. They, they, they wrote back and said, well, we had a cancellation. And, and you're going to get in. That door opened. But I remember when I got up to the, there to school, people would say to me, why are you at Emmaus? And I'd say, God led me here. And they'd sort of go, yeah, well, that's the spiritual answer. Now, why are you really here? God led me here. That's why I went. When God wants to speak to us in an unmistakable way, he is a sovereign God, and he is able to do so. Are you struggling to know God's will for you? Are you trying to decide how God is guiding you? This passage shows us that he guides us in a variety of ways. He may lead by passion, a burden that he lays on your heart. He may lead by perspective, a conviction that you hold because of your unique giftedness. He may lead by preference, by giving you the desire of your heart. He may lead by precaution, sensitivity to how what you do affects others. He may lead by policy, the directives of those in leadership above you. He may lead by prevention, 
by closing a door that you're trying to go through, or he may lead by persuasion, by speaking to you in an unmistakable way. So the message I see in this passage is relax. There's no reason to worry and agonize over it. A God who is sovereign will be sure that his will is known. The issue for you is to make sure that you've got a heart that is saying yes. We're going to close in prayer. And before we do, I'm going to ask Perry Harkey and Carrie Leone to come up, two that were baptized this morning, and give you a chance to meet them at the close of the service. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for this example from Scripture, how you led the Apostle Paul. And Father, we thank you that you are still at work in this world, still accomplishing your, your work, still building your church, still expanding your kingdom. And Father, I pray that we might truly have hearts that say yes as you lead and guide us in the various ways that you do to better accomplish your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.